founders. Welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. All right, founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, we are honored to be joined by Justin Cook. Justin is the co-founder and CMO of Empire Flippers, the world's leading marketplace for buying and selling established and profitable online businesses. He also launched WebStreet, which makes online businesses a more accessible asset class by enabling individual investors to passively own internet businesses like content, FBA, and SaaS sites. And today, to tell us how he did that is Justin himself. So Justin, thank you so much for being here, my friend. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, we're pumped, man. So these are very unique businesses that you have started and, and gotten involved with. How did this haul, how'd this come to be? Yeah, so my business partner and I, uh, for, this is for the Empire Flipper side because that's the business that started first. We were okay. working as a mid-level managers, an SEO company in the U.S. And, you know, we had had some previous experience uh, working with someone in the Philippines as kind of a virtual assistant. And as this company needed to kind of scale up, we said, look, we have a connection over there. Why don't we start hiring some kind of back office personnel in the Philippines to cut costs and like really kind of scale the business? And they went for it. And we started adding more and more people. We eventually went out there to kind of see the team and check them out and kind of see what they're up to. And we realized they were all working out of this one girl's small house. Like they had this like plastic table set up and like computer set up. There's like barely an AC blowing. We're like, oh, my God, we're running a sweatshop in the Philippines. This isn't good. (laughs) So we were like, we need to fix this. Um, we should like make this legit. So we, we went back to the U.S. and we at an Outback Steakhouse, we sat down with a napkin and said, like, how can we sketch out, you know, our own kind of entrepreneurial venture? How can we set out an outsourcing company that will work with our previous employer? And we pitched them on it. We said, look, we're going to go over there, be on the ground, uh, you know, working with the team in the Philippines and kind of scale this up for you um, and, you know, add clients and kind of like build our business this way. And they went for it. So in 2009 for Joe and to early 2010 for me, we moved to the Philippines to set up our outsourcing company. Got an office, you got legal agreements in place. It was uh, it was it was wild. Wow. Okay. So spotting an opportunity and having a business idea come to you is is not unique, but having that on top of that spotting the opportunity, being in a different culture, being across the world, seems like an even bigger kind of challenge or risk to undertake. Was that scary for you starting a business and also having it be across the world? So we'd had a failed real estate company previously, and that's kind of how we got our virtual assistant experience. And so I knew what it was like to fail in business. And if you've never failed before, if you've never started a business before and failed, you know, it sounds absolutely scary, miserable, sounds like the worst experience ever. And having gone through that, failed and had to go get a job, tucked my tail between my legs, I realized it's not the end of the world right? Mm-hmm. There is a comeback from that. And so I, I think I was primed or in a position to where I was willing to take another stab at it. I've been a couple of years and we were ready to, to, you know, put our foot out there again. Now moving to the Philippines to set up a company is a whole different beast. Um, you know, but it was exciting, right? Like Joe and I had both traveled quite a bit. We'd been to Asia before, not the Philippines, but Asia. And we were like, look, it'd be so, it's so interesting to like, you know, make dollars and spend bot or dong or pesos or whatever. Um, you know, the lifestyle over there, you, you know, for like four or $5,000 a month is significantly better than you get in California, for example. So we knew that even with a small amount of money, you know, $20,000, $30,000 saved with regular income, we could go out there and, you know, try to make our way. Yeah. Were the, the initial, uh, I guess your first employees over there, were they skeptical about the two of you coming in or were they excited and arms open? Like, what was that like? Well, the first people we hired, we hadn't been there yet, right? Um, so we had hired, I think, eight people um, just fully remotely. And then when we visited them, you know, we said, look, we're going to set up an office. So we started going through the process of doing that remotely. And then finally, you know, while we were there, one of the things hiring in the Philippines directly is we'd have people come in, interview with Joe and I, um, and they were, we, we had an office, so we were legitimate in that sense, but they're also worried about, you don't have your like e-big, it's basically you're kind of like, um, healthcare and all the things you need for like a real company. We hadn't set that up yet. And so they were skeptical about that. Even though we had an office, they're like, who are these foreigners coming in, trying to set up a company, call it a company. So 
you know, it's easy, I think, if you go in and you're setting up like a 500-person office and you've got all the kind of like legal things in place. But we were two guys trying to run to the Philippines and hustle up a business, right? And so it's a little different. Um, but yeah, I think eventually, when we got everything set up, we went through all the kind of like processes to get that done. And eventually it was fine. But initially it was, I think they were skeptical. But once they realized we were paying people, had real people in the office and were doing real business, they were they were fine with that. Yeah, and they weren't having to work at a girl's fold-out table with no AC too, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was... <laughs> That was wild. I mean, we were like, man, dude, this is not how we want to do it. We should go set up a real office. Funny enough, though, with this outsourcing business, it ultimately failed. It didn't, it failed to launch, I'd say. Uh, you know, we were running it. The previous employer we worked for started cutting back. So even though we had like a no cut contract with them because we want to protect ourselves to some degree, you know, when this is, you know, uh, post uh, 2008, and so it was really hard for them to raise money, they started failing. He started cutting back on our business. So that's what born, you know, that's basically what started Empire Flippers was we had this, you know, this no-cut contract. We had a limited amount of other contracts. And so every time we'd add a new contract, we'd lose people with our previous employer. So we'd lose four people, right, and gain three. And we weren't growing. So we had to look for something else to do. Well, we were at the point where we were going to have to, you know, shut down the business. And so we, we tried a number of things. One of the things we started doing is building niche AdSense sites, so niche websites that were monetized via AdSense, we could put those up with our small team in the Philippines and get them, you know, making, you know, 50 bucks a month, 100 bucks a month. And so we started like cranking out these small niche sites monetized by, by AdSense. And that's kind of how we started with, and we already had SEO experience. So building these sites is kind of how we started what became Empire Flippers. And so then what, t tell me what Empire Flippers is or what was it at that point? Like what did it start as? Yeah, so Empire Flippers today is an online brokerage where we help people buy and sell online businesses. And those range from anything from, you know, $30,000, $40,000. You know, maybe they're making $1,000, $1,200 a month up to, I think our biggest deal so far is around $13 million. We've done just under $500 million in total sales, so $480 million plus in total sales, over 2,200 deals total. We've got a team of um, just under 50 people, about 40-something people, 45, 46 people on the team and they, you know, live around the world, but that's not how we started. Right. We You're started right. off as me and my business partner in a townhouse living together in the Philippines, uh, with a few people in an office building niche websites for ourselves. That's, that's how it started. So, you know, we were hustling it up. We were working from home or working from the office, um, and trying to get this off the ground, you know, making, you know, 50 bucks a month on one website, a hundred bucks a month on another. We started building out dozens of these every week. And that's kind of how we started. Like I started building niche sites myself. Like, okay, how do I set up hosting? How do I get the content? What kind of WordPress theme do I use? I tried to figure it out. And then my business partner helped me scale that process I had learned and transfer that to our team. So we chunked it out saying, okay, keyword research is this. We're going to have a team of people doing keyword research. You know, setting up hosting is another thing. Getting the content written or ordered eventually. We started ordering content was another process. So we just chunked it out. What I had done myself and then put that into a process for our team. Okay. And then when did you spot the need or the opportunity for creating a marketplace, it sounds like, for people to buy and sell their businesses? Yeah, so we were building these small sites on our own, and we said, look, you know, we reached the point where we are making, I don't know, maybe let's say on total, all the sites, this is early days, 1200 bucks a month or something. and But we had spent you know, maybe ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 and so if we wanted to really scale it up, we would continue to go in the hole. We're going out of pocket. We weren't making any money. And we said, you know, my business partner, I fought over this. Like, what do we do? And how do we do we scale it up? Continue like going in the hole, spending our own money to get this to a point of like relevancy. Because 1200 bucks a month isn't going to get you very far, even in the Philippines. So we eventually settled on, let's try and sell these websites. And we started off, uh, you know, seeing if we could list these sites. But the problem was that listing these sites you know, there, there's places, eBay and, and other places you can go. Um, the problem is, though, is they're not really, that's not really built for selling websites, right? And the other problem is, like, you'd have to list, okay, here's the URL, here's exactly, you know, the, the site. And the problem with that is, as we started getting, building a name for ourselves, people would go and see the URL, and they would copy the exact business model. They would mm. copy the exact niche, the keywords, the content, and then we would sell it off to a buyer who now has a dozen copycats. It got so bad, someone wrote like an ebook about how to go find Empire Flipper sites and copy them and make money. 
So we, we had buyers that were asking us, they're like, hey, I want to buy from you, but can you just not list the URL publicly? Can you <laughs> not like share that beforehand so I don't have copycats to deal with? And so we said, oh, that's a pretty good idea. So why don't we just list the sites ourselves, right? We have a small audience, small but growing audience. Why don't we list the sites ourselves and see if people are willing to buy from us? So you can look, the original company is called AdSense Flippers. You can go to like the Wayback Machine or something, I can give you a link, and you can see our original marketplace, which was super silly, but it was, here's the kind of niche, here's how much money it makes, here's a button you can click now and PayPal us the money to buy the site. Like it was, it was that simple. Um, but people were interested and people were buying these sites. So you know, we could sell a, a site earning $100 a month for $1,500 to $2,500. And if we're creating a bunch of those every week, like it started to get significant. And it was a much, a much better way for us to snowball kind of the earnings, right? Because we were able to like fast forward those earnings so we could reinvest that in building more sites at scale. Ah, love it. Now, how did you actually protect, like what about that was different than what you were doing before? Because you still have to give people somewhat of a preview for what they're buying, right? Yeah. But you don't want to give too much away where somebody can just copy and paste your approach and your niche and whatever. So what was the difference? So just not releasing the URL to start, we were not telling them until they purchased the site. So when they purchased the site, they would get the URL. They knew generally what niche was in the dog toy niche, say for example, but they didn't know the specifics about the URL. They'd know the specifics about the content. So that was the kind of like innovative approach we took. Um, and it's really helpful from a buying perspective because you don't deal with a lot, of, a lot of copycats. The problem with a very small niche site is there's not a huge moat around it, right? You don't have a lot of defensive properties about the business that will keep other people from entering the space. This is a new burgeoning site. And keep in mind, many of the people buying these weren't like massive savvy investors, right? These are people that probably like some people in your audience, probably like you guys were at one point and I was at one point where you're like, are these internet monies real? Right. You know what I mean? Do people really like, okay, it says it makes a hundred bucks a month. Does it really, will I actually get that money or is the whole thing sketch? Yeah. Right. And so yeah. I think that's a lot of our initial buyers were kind of in that phase where they were just like, I'm going to buy it, see what happens, see if I can just figure this whole internet thing out. And so over time, this is over a couple of years, we had people that would buy from us that would then start their own blog or podcast and start talking about how they were building sites, how they were buying sites. They ultimately started selling sites with us. And so that was really, uh, I think, interesting. Now, I should say that our process for building sites was very specific, and it failed at one point. I think this is like 2012 or, yeah, 2012, 2013. So, you know, we had had people asking, hey, you have this audience of buyers now, people that want to buy niche sites. I've been building along with you guys because you've explained the process on your blog and podcast and given it all away for free. I've been following it and been successful. Can I sell with you? And we were like, hell no, you can't sell with us. That's our moneymaker, right? Like we're not going to let you sell your sites on our site to our audience. That'll take away from the sites we're selling. Um, eventually though, we, when we realized the, the process for our creating these sites was less effective you know, we'd put in previously, we put in 50 bucks and earn 200. Then they got down to like putting in 50 bucks and earning, you know, 60. And we're like, <laughs> it's way less profitable. Why don't we let some people start selling with us? We'll take a risk. We'll take a small percentage instead of the hundred percent. We'll take a percentage of the deals that they do and then see if that works. And that's really what took off because now it's not limited to our scale or right. our limited, you know, creation process. It also opened us up to do non-adsense sites. So e-commerce, you know, ultimately Amazon FBA, SaaS businesses, it really opened the market up to us to, to allow us to find new buyers and new sellers and all these different verticals. Yeah, it totally makes sense. I mean, you are limited. It's kind of like Uber going back to somewhat being like a taxi. Like I've got to own all my, my cars and I've got to, you know, be responsible for it all versus how quickly they could scale where it's like, you got your own car, just come do it through our service. Right. Um, what I'm curious about though, is you've had, which is not unique to you, but what is unique to you is that you kept going. You've had a m many times about the story said, and we did this and then it, it kind of failed. And then we did this and it, and it failed, but you kept pivoting and you kept learning. So how do you think about failure in terms of business? Yeah. I mean, there's a point at which you're kind of throwing a lot of stuff against the wall to see what sticks. Right. And as a marketer, like I know that you guys probably know that you're like trying a bunch of things and you're going to see which ones kind of pan out. Um, when you have something that is working, that's when you start to double down, you start to really kind of like move forward. So, 
you know, uh, our niche sites worked very, very well for a period of time. We scaled that up until it didn't, right? It started mm. to fail. And so we had to pivot. We're forced to. And so when we allowed other people to start listing their sites, we realized the demand in the market. Now, we, we were still doing other things. We still had our outsourcing company going. We had a couple of other projects that were making money. We were selling content, for example, to other people creating niche sites. And at a point, and this was all making money, it was profitable. And at a point, we realized the demand for like an online brokerage or marketplace to buy and sell businesses was so large. There was so much attention around it, so much like, you know, you just felt it. And we said, let's dump everything else. So we dumped the other parts of our business, either sold or just dropped or gave away a Twitter background company we had. That was the thing back in the day. Our outsourcing company we sold. Um, the kind of content and niche uh, site selection services we dropped. We got rid of everything and really doubled down, tripled down on Empire Flippers as a business brokerage. And that we didn't know at the time how that would work out. We thought it was the right move, and ultimately it worked out for us. But I, I'd say, you know, when you find something that has so much demand and has traction, then grab onto that and ride that that horse. It's really good. Yeah, I just I, I love that. One, I'm thinking about the pumpkin plan book. Uh, the pumpkin plan essentially is talking about, hey, how do you want to grow the biggest yeah. Mike, pumpkins? Mike Mikowitz, right? what's his name? You, you... Like yes, yeah. I can't. I never even try to, to say his last name. I appreciate <laughs> you trying. I'm like, nah, I'm yeah, getting yeah. out of there. Um, but yeah, I, 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 it reminds me of that. Of like, yeah, we, we cut these smaller things that were actually profitable, that maybe we enjoyed, maybe we felt a sense of pride yeah. over. But we dumped those things. We saw this, we invested in this, and this was the thing that, that grew. I love that. And then also, it's just an interesting, you know, it's something I just wrote down, which is oftentimes Drew and I are interviewing somebody on the podcast who set up a marketplace, who went out with the intention of setting up a, up a marketplace. I want to become the Uber of fill in the blank. And we've interviewed a few of those over the years. And I just, I just loved and wrote down, like you stumbled upon being a marketplace business. You know, I'm like, that is... That is phenomenal that you're like, actually, we didn't want to do it. But then we got rid of our self-preservation and it really worked yeah. out for us, uh, I think is is cool. Looking back, one of the problems with marketplaces, particularly double-sided marketplaces, there's one that's going to have a higher need than the other, hmm. right? So, so in our business, yeah. it's supply side. So if you have the supply, right, the buyers are going to come. Right now, you obviously have to market, you have to do mm -hmm. all the things, but supply side seems to be the most critical factor. And it depends kind of where the market's at and stuff too. But yeah, that's that's the biggest thing. Uh, one other thing yeah. I'll mention is that, um, and, and it's been really innovative for our company and our, our next company that we started was that, you know, we had the office in the Philippines and we would go into the office, I had a desk and we would interview people there personally. And when the outsourcing company was struggling, we got to the point where, you know, we weren't able to keep the office open anymore. We weren't able to pay the bills and we basically had to send everyone to go work from home. And in the Philippines, you know, and Joe and I had a townhouse. Uh, we sent everyone to go work from their own home, made sure they had internet and everything. But we felt like, oh my God, we're about to fail. I mean, this is thing, this is like 2011 timeframe. And this is a point at which like, you know, it was pre kind of like remote work and everyone working online. And we thought, you know, wrongly that you have to have an office to be a real company, yeah. right? Like you have to have an office, you have to have an address. If we have everyone working from home, we're just illegitimate. So like that imposter syndrome started kicking in where we're like, what are we doing? Are we going to have to go back to the US? Are we going to fail miserably? And what we realized is that you can set up a company where everyone's remote all the time. In fact, later on, I, I wasn't working from home. I traveled for four years with my now wife and just lived two months in Bangkok and two months in Saigon and, and just lived all over the place. And our employees now do the same thing. So we have a team of people that some are in the Philippines, some are Americans living in Saigon, uh, Americans living in Medellin, uh, a British person living in Prague. So we have people living and working all around the world, um, and we don't have any restrictions on their location, on even their time. We don't you know, put them on hours. So it's more about what they're able to deliver and you know, making sure they're, I mean, for salespeople, they have to be up certain times. So it's inconvenient when you're in Asia trying to call people in the U.S., but, you know, if they can do it, they can do it. And, uh, and that was really innovative for us. And not yeah. only for the company, but for us personally, like for a lifestyle benefit, like I can go to Europe for two months. You know what I mean? Yeah. Here, okay. So here's what I'm curious about on, on this side, the fact that it's worked out successfully for you. There's a book um, 
called Let My People Surf. Have you ever read that? But it's by uh, Yvonne Chouinard. He's the founder of Patagonia. And what was you know fascinating about that is he got into business not wanting to get into business. Mm. He, by his own accord, was just a guy that loved climbing, rock climbing, and he loved surfing. But he noticed that the gear sucked, and so he started making his own gear. And he and his best friend started doing that. His best friend started North Face. He started Patagonia. And so he's like, all right, if I got to have a business, I still want a business where if people look outside and they see that the surf is great, they're allowed to go surf. So that was the vision, right? I want this flexible yeah. you know, thing where we can still do the business, but we can still have this lifestyle. But he said at the beginning it was a train wreck because they didn't actually know how to do that vision without six people having left for the day and no one was fulfilling orders. And all of a sudden they're backed up and, and late. And so it took some innovation and it took some, uh, yeah, I guess it took some innovation to figure out how we can do both. We get the privilege of getting to go surfing on a good day while knowing how to do it in a way that doesn't break the business. Right. And so I think that's the struggle a lot of people are in today where they see the vision COVID helped them see the vision of what you are already doing which is, do we have to commute? Do we have to be in the same place? Yeah. But things break down when we don't know how to actually skillfully do that and balance both. So how have you guys kind of worked that process out where we can be wherever and work whenever without it breaking the business? Yeah, so it's not a, um, we've solved that problem completely. It's, com- you know, it's fixed. Here's, you know, it's perfect. No, it's not. Um, but what we start with is we measure the outputs. Right. So what is, what are the, what's the individual? What are the team supposed to accomplish? What are their goals? What are their weekly, monthly, quarterly goals? And are they accomplishing those? So that's really the thing we care about is like what's being output. Now, if the output isn't there, then we'll we'll back it up a bit and go, OK, what are your inputs? Mm. Right. Here's where your inputs generally should be to accomplish this. Are you doing oh, OK? Well, we found out you're not putting in the inputs. So you're not doing the dials. You're not doing the number of virus other calls you need to do. You're not taking it. OK, now we can figure out where the flaw or the hole in the funnel is. Mm. Right. And so it's easier for like sales and maybe marketing it can be a little harder on the engineering side, which I'm not really a part of, but it's a little harder there. Um, but operational uh, sales is pretty easy. Marketing's somewhat challenging and engineering is much more difficult because they're such longer term in, in their projects. That's a good insight that like certain aspects or certain types of businesses might find it easier to adopt the remote. Like I'm thinking in, in Patagonia's sense, like that's very much, you got to be there on the assembly line, like hands-on making the thing, putting it in the box, shipping it out. Right. Versus yeah. you just need to get on the phone and make some outbound calls or, you just have a project in front of you that you just got to get done by this time, right? So I can see the the industry specific thing being a challenge that's different. So so we focus specifically on businesses that are not necessarily like ours, but that are remotely run. So for example, if you had a business, a lawn care business that was local, not like a lawn care marketplace, like I knew I had one of your previous guests on, but like a local kind of like in the tri-state area or whatever, then we wouldn't help you sell uh, that business. We wouldn't list that business for sale. Only businesses that can be run remotely. Hmm. So that's really important to us. Like that, um, we don't want only like a local buyer pool. It makes it much more challenging to have like regional buyers. We'd rather have a worldwide buyer pool because it makes it much more likely that the business will sell, that it'll sell for a higher multiple. So those are the kind of businesses we focus on. That makes total sense. One of the things that, that I'm curious about just from your marketing skills and uh, you know, you had to start, a, a, you started a marketplace and then you had to go find the supply. You had to get trusted customers who said, this isn't a scam, overcome the feeling of, is this a scam? Are these legit sites? All that stuff. How do you, how do you find and build a, a, a trusting audience, yeah, trusting so customer base? We had to build our own kind of buyer base because we were listing and selling our own sites. So when we controlled the supply to start, it made it a lot easier because like our whole marketing was focused on buy side. Um, the other thing we did that was really interesting is I think is that uh, we were building these niche sites and had them profitable, and we just gave it all away for free. So at that time, it was pretty popular to give away like part of the process and hide the rest of it behind a paywall. Yeah, right. Say so I'll give you I'll give you little nuggets, but if you want the real juice, you're gonna have to pay me. And so we kind of broke the mold on that and said, no, 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 we're not going to do that. We'd rather, the attention was more, more important. We'd rather give everything away for free, uh, talk very transparently about how we're building these sites. 
And what that did was people that were that didn't have the money or weren't interested in buying the sites could still follow along the process and create their own niche sites. So we were like, look, if you've got you know $5,000 to $10,000 to invest, you should have, and, and not all of your savings, but if you've got $5,000 you want to take a, take a flyer on and test this out, absolutely do it. You know, Here's the process to buy. If you don't, if you've got 1500 bucks or 800 bucks, whatever you want to start a business, here's exactly how you do it. Here's mm-hmm. how you start the niche site. And so even for the people that weren't buying for us, they would promote our stuff, right? Because they would say, look, these guys are talking about exactly how to do it, giving us the, the keys to the kingdom, so to speak, and just telling us for free, I love these guys. And so, you know, that 70, 80% of our audience would go out and kind of promote our business to the 20%, 25% people that would actually buy the, the websites. That makes that make sense. sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the you you exchange the value for what pennies they might be able to pay you for behind the paywall to these will help us establish us kind of like an industry expert as well as a trusted person in the industry. Uh, that that reputation was worth more than what they might have might or might not have paid for. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. If you were starting again and you were, let's say, not not creating a marketplace, but someone's listening here and they're like, I do want to create, you know, a, a digital business. I do want to create a, a business online that I can work wherever. Where would you have like where would you put their head? What do they need to be thinking about? It's difficult. I mean, I don't deal with a lot of like startup founders today, people are looking to start their own business. I mean, most of our business deals with kind of like the end of the process. Mm. So you've already built a business, you've already been successful. It's one of the reasons to like when we go to conferences and we speak or we do podcast interviews, a lot of times like we're kind of viewed as like, you know, we can talk about the aspirational stories of people that have been successful. But what we don't see, because we're not like frontline guys, is we don't see all the people that are kind of like just trying to look for a business idea or the people that start businesses and fail. Right, like I think even our employees, Joe and I, my business partner, all we see are these successful, profitable businesses at the end of their life cycle looking to sell. And so we've get we've got this really kind of like biased view of online entrepreneurship. We're like, everywhere I look, there are these successful businesses. <laughs> this guy built a million dollar business, this guy built the five million dollar business. It all works for everyone. And so you know, it's it's tough. I have to remind myself that that's not the case. There's lots of people that start and fail businesses. Um, so that being said, that's a huge caveat that they're out there. Yeah. Um, but, but some of the things we're finding right now are, uh, particularly in the, the e-com or the DTC space, so starting an actual e-com brand is interesting, something that's not just kind of a uh, easily recreate a product where you actually go to China, you're working with them to kind of create the product is helpful. One of the hotter businesses we've been selling recently are like the Kindle ebook businesses. Hmm. So people creating a whole bunch of Kindle ebooks in particular niches and have series of books. Um, that's interesting. Uh, you know, with like ChatGPT and AI, uh, what's the long-term survivability with that? I'm not sure, but a lot of people have kind of created these types of businesses that are successful today and making money. Well, okay. So here's what here's what here's what interesting. Now that I know a little bit of where what you get to see day in and day out, I found interesting. I don't know how I went down this rabbit hole. I'm a generalist, man. I'm always learning random stuff, seeing random stuff. But at some point, I learned about how counterfeiters, you know, people that work for the FBI, you know, how do they get really good at spotting a fake? And what I found interesting was they spend less time studying fakes and they spend all their time studying the real deal. They get so familiar with the look, the feel, the texture of a real dollar bill that they spot almost instantly a fake, right? So what you get to see is the real deal every day. You get to see the businesses that have worked, the ones that are actually profitable, the ones that are worth selling. What have you learned by looking at those, right? What do they have in common? What are some things you're like, man, I see this in common with all these real deal successful online businesses? Yeah, a lot of businesses that are successful start off, uh, they niche down. Um, so they're focused on a much smaller niche rather than doing, let's say you want to build a site in the um, health or wellness space, right? Uh, a, a business or a brand in the health and wellness space. You don't want to cover the health and wellness space. That's mm. outrageously big. And so getting any traction in a very, very large, broad niche like that is going to be really difficult. Maybe if you're backed and you have VC money, if like this crazy big idea, maybe you can do that. I'm not saying it won't work, but generally for us, for me and you, for most people, that's probably not going to work. But if you really narrow it down to like, I love CrossFit and I don't love the, uh, um, 
the jump ropes that are out there across. I'm going to create a new jump rope, an innovative uh, jump rope. Like that's a niche that is much easier to target, much easier to get traction in. It's a lot easier to advertise to because advertising to health and wellness or like personal finance, and as another good example, right. is super expensive. If you want like personal finance, followers, customers, whatever, it's going to cost you a ton of money. But if you're looking for a very specific niche, then it's much easier. It's a much lower cost per acquisition for customers. So, I mean, generally when you're starting a business, you want to narrow your scope. We did this too, right? So we, um, when we were building our business, we, we called ourselves uh, the 20X guys and the like basically under 10,000 guys. So we'd sold a lot of sites that, were, that cost under $10,000. And we'd sell for 20x, meaning 20 times their net monthly profit. So if they're making, you know, 100 bucks a month, they would sell for $2,000. 200 bucks a month, they sell for $4,000. And we were known for this when, on the very first couple of years we started. Um, now this became a problem later uh, when we tried to expand out of that. I mean, even two, three years after, we were no longer doing that. We were selling for larger multiples and much larger businesses. They were like, oh, yeah, they just sell businesses under 10000 only 20 times monthly profit. And so we had to, like, overcome this, uh, you know, kind of niche we'd put ourselves in. So, But that's a future you problem. If yeah. you're just starting out, who <laughs> gives a shit? It doesn't matter until you actually are successful. And, like, if you can't sell products or services to your customers, that's the whole game. So, yeah. like, find the easiest way to do that and crush that because you'll have future problems. You need to, like, you know, pivot out of a particular niche or a sub-niche that you've selected. Screw it. You can do that later. Be yeah. successful now. Yeah. Yeah, that, I love that. That's a future you problem, and, and it's an easier problem. Like, sure, it's a problem, but it's an easier problem to just slightly change the reputation of your success versus just trying to be successful at all, right? So. Yeah. Yeah, a similar thing, you know, Joe and I used to be the face of the company, everything on the company, right? And so over the last three or four years, we started to back out of that for multiple reasons, one of which it makes your business easier to sell. If it's always you out there, you out there promoting the business, if someone else buys that, they're going to, and we know this because we sell a lot of businesses, you know, they're going to require your time after the fact. So a lot of times there are earnouts in place in the business, sometimes it's profit-based, sometimes it's time-based. But as an entrepreneur, if you are the face of the company or you have personal branding that's tied to the company, they'll either require you to continue or require use of your personal brand. So we started backing out of the business. And so that was a bit difficult too. Who else do you put in place and how do you do that? Looking back, I think that was probably a mistake even today because yes, it would have made, yes, it makes the business harder to sell. It makes it a bit more challenging. You have to stick around a bit longer. But there's something really good about having like a founder-led business, right? And so when it's less founder-led, I think that you lose something. And so I, I actually, for something like today that we're dealing with that I think I, I regret a bit, I think I regret that. Yeah, I can totally see that. I mean, it does seem like the trend has been in the last five to 10 years that people are used to seeing a face and a personality attached to their favorite trusted brands. You yeah. know, back in the day, like, you didn't really know beyond GE who was, who's at the head of it. Like, unless you're in the business industry and you're like Jack Welch, right. But everybody else, I don't know. It's just GE. It's a trusted name. But now yeah. you want to know who, who's with that. What's the personality like, even like what are their likes and, and dislikes and political interests and all that kind of stuff, you know, what are their values? Values. Like, we, we do this both externally, um, but also internally. So two things that I think would probably help um, some of your listeners, or at least it's something that was successful for us that I'd really like to pass on. Uh, one of the things was we would do like a uh, strategy planning and it started off again, Joe and I in a townhouse sitting down for a couple hours, but we'd start with like the long-term vision, right? The like three to five year, you know, big, hairy, like where are we going to be? What would be, what would be super successful? What would we consider super successful? And that's like, what does it look like? What does it smell like? What does it taste like? Like literally where are we and how do we feel about the business at that point? We work backwards. We say, okay, that's the, the long-term, the three to five year plan, long-term, but long-term plan. What do we need to do this year to hit that first goalpost to hit that plan? And then what do we need to do next quarter and what did we do last quarter to hit our one-year goal? So we started this literally on a Google Doc. It was maybe like a page and a half um, for the first one. I, we've got a record of it over the last, I don't know, 10 years or so. And then we do it every quarter. We do this quarterly. And then we set our, our long-term plan, which doesn't change much, right? Over the years it does, but it doesn't change quarter to quarter that much. 
then your annual plan, and then what you did last quarter and what you're going to do next quarter. It started with Joe and I. We ended up involving some of the employees we hired. We ended up with all of our employees. Then we narrowed it down to the management team. Now our management team does that without us. We have input with the person that runs the company, but like it's just the three of us. And then he sits down with, with the crew and works it out with them. So that's been wildly successful, I think, in that we don't always hit our goals, um, but it keeps us directionally right. Right. So it, it keeps us like heading in a direction and we zigzag to get there. But directionally, we have like a long term goal that we're heading towards. And that's changed over time. But that's been really helpful. The, the second thing we've done is I mean, people call them team retreats. Uh, but, you know, when we started off, we would meet. It was aggressive three times a year for a month in various locations. So we did wow. like a month in Phuket. We did a month in the Philippines. We did three weeks in Hong Kong. We, we'd get our, this is a small team. There's probably like seven, eight of us at this point um, for Empire Flippers. And we'd get our people together in various locations. Now we pared that down, pared that down to twice a year and anywhere from like, you know, seven to 10 days at this point. But it's been super successful in like providing like internal leadership to the team um, in a fairly high stress environment. When people are selling their business, it is really I mean, a lot of times people do this once, twice, three times in their lifetime. And so you don't do it a lot. It, it's nerve wracking. When you get to the very end and you have, you're like transferring your business over and you haven't received the payment. Oh my God. Even friends of mine, like personal friends of mine that have sold their business get super sketched out at that point. Am I going to get paid? When am I going to get paid? Are we sure the wire's coming through? Like all these nerves kick in. So um, when, when, when it's so stressful for our customers, it's really good to get our, our team together and like have them drink a beer together, right? Like play games together, goof around, right? Because you're, you're dealing with high stress situations and we're remote, you know? So you're like calling someone in San Diego when you're in London, you're not seeing each other face to face and it's easy to get kind of crabby with each other. So getting together mm -hmm. twice a year and like being able to like break bread, do a steak dinner, have some drinks is super helpful in like easing the tension and making sure we're a cohesive team. Yeah. Man, that's that's killer. That's actually Drew and I both worked remotely. I've been working remotely since since 2016, so not as long as as you. But during that time, uh, working remotely, one of the rules, I guess, it was very similar. Is we got together quarterly, face to face, and we did do the strategy planning. We did some, you know, tactical things for the business. But for the most part, if I reflect back on it, you go, you know what? The most valuable thing was breaking bread, remembering that they're human laughing with them, you know, like it was so easy. And that would probably be my one thing for like, hey, do the remote work thing. But if you never see each other, you know, in person, you can have a challenge, which is you start to tell yourself stories when you're yeah. sitting all alone, yeah. I, you know, that person on the other side. My business partner, Joe, and I started Empire Flippers. We have another company called WebStreet, webstreet.co. Yeah. And uh, we have a third part, uh, partner on that, Mike. We're actually flying on the 7th. Joe's coming here from the Philippines where he lives. He's going to fly here, hang yeah. out a couple of days. And then we're flying to Buenos Aires to meet up with the team um, in Buenos Aires for like eight to 10 days. And so yeah. we're just talking about what we're going to do. I think there's some hiking, a little bit of kayaking, some dinners, but then a lot of work, right? And so during yeah. the week we work and the weekends on the end, we're going to do some party, party, fun stuff. But it's really yeah. great to get with the team. And they got like maybe just under 20 people now. Um, so being able to meet with them, almost everyone's going to be there in person, getting some work done, having some fun together is uh, really motivating for the team and for us, frankly. Yeah. Damn. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, just like Jordan said, we've noticed the further you are separated, the more room there is for conspiracy theories, you know, like yeah. personal conspiracy theories. You would, you had this intention behind that email, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so for the people that are still in traditional offices and working together, we're like, it is good. You need to take a retreat. You guys need to get out. But it's more of a mandate if you're remote where it's like it probably needs to be longer. It probably needs to be more often just to keep that like, I know you. I know who yeah. my counterparts are. I They're human. You're a real person. You're a real person. Like you're not ripping me on Slack or email. You're yes. actually, I understand what you're going through. Yeah. Yeah. You know. So one of the interesting things was when I was speaking at that Chick-fil-A conference I told you about, I was talking with Andrew Cathy backstage and I was just asking them some, him some questions. And one was like, they had just gone more remote than, the, than they ever had before. You know, this is a few years ago. COVID was still, you know, a kind of a big thing. And I said, you know, what's something you didn't expect? 
And he said, the level of drama has increased. And I was like, all right, that was it. That was my suspicion. And he was like, it's the, it makes sense now, but we didn't expect it then that the, just the amount of interpersonal drama has increased when they see each other less often. And it's exactly what we're talking about, right? Like, they're just well, the larger team you grow too, you, you tend to get a bit more of that, right? And then you get a bit more corporate. You need to add some levels of HR. We fought and resisted that, not HR, but like we fought and resisted the kind of corporate pull quite a bit. Um, I think it's important to to look. We're not VC backed, so we don't have some mandate to grow at all costs. Yeah. I think that's really important too. And there's you know there are businesses that need to raise money to grow. Um, whether because it's like such a hot market or they they should be forced to drive forward very quickly and innovate and take higher risks. But, you know, we're, because we're bootstrapped, we didn't feel the need to do that. And I'm, I'm glad in retrospect that, uh, Empire Builders was bootstrapped and we didn't raise money because we didn't have a mandate to grow at all costs and take much higher risks. Otherwise, I mean, this is a business that we can keep for a very long time. We'll potentially sell it, but like we don't have to, and we're not forced to, and there's no investors breathing down our necks. One of the things I should mention too to your audience is like a lot of times, uh, you know, we're not smart enough to come up with like new products or new services necessarily. We have customers that like bang our heads about it, right? Until we kind of like realize, oh, that's probably a good idea. Like, for example, people want to sell their sites at Empire Flippers and we resisted it, right? Because we were, well, we want to make our own money, but also just because we were like, I'm not really sure that's the direction we want to head. And eventually there's so much request for it that we did it. There's another thing to where like, you know, the market on, on buying and selling businesses limited to some degree. It's very, it's growing and COVID helped our business, right? We talked about like your business, but like COVID's been, was a boon to online businesses and entrepreneurship. And so we were selling a lot more businesses, but there is a limit to who can buy a business. Like my aunt reached out to me uh, many years ago and was like, Hey, I like what you're doing. Can I buy like an online business? And my aunt has zero experience like running an online business or with FBA or e-commerce or whatever. I was like, I mean, you can, but you got to go get some skills first. You know what I mean? And like, so we had a lot of requests from people that had the money, but didn't have the time or the skills to run an online business saying, Hey, how do I get involved? And we were like, uh, you know, go figure it out. Go read like niche pursuits or smart passive income or whatever. Go read one of those guys and spend some time figuring it out and come back to us. And like, that's kind of a shitty answer to people that are coming to you with money and interest right? And sending them elsewhere to, Hey, go, go figure it out and then come back when you're ready. So we were like, that's a problem. We really need to solve a high quality problem. So we were like, what can we do? So we realized, you know, we have all these like successful founders, people that have uh, grown and then sold their business. We know the, the details behind how much money they make, how they were successful, the process, how many times they've been successful. So we've got a, a unique secret advantage of like having this, you know, stable of like successful entrepreneurs. What if we could pair like passive investors with the stable of entrepreneurs that already have successful businesses? And so we ended up creating a company called Webstreet, webstreet.co, where we it's basically a marketplace for passive investors and successful operators or entrepreneurs, right? So let's say you built a business, sold it for $1.5 million, an e-commerce business. Now you want to do it again, but instead of putting all your money up front to buy a business, you can put up a small percentage of that and have a bunch of passive investors back you to buy a business and not just do it once, do it maybe every quarter or twice a year. And you can start building up a team, you know, a network of online businesses that you run that have now been invested in passively. So we started, and we, we started uh, web street, um, you know, and with not, there were three things we needed to figure out. Number one, can we find enough operators to make this viable? Number two, can we find enough investors interested to like fund the businesses they're going to purchase? Mm-hmm. And number three, can we deliver a return to investors? Right? Because if all, we get all those things right, this is a huge win because it opens up our market. And so we told investors from the start that like, they want to get involved. We're like, I don't know if we can answer those three things, but if you want to take a stab at it with us, this is what we're doing. And uh, yeah. we're just super transparent about it. Like, I don't know if it's going to work, but this is, this is the goal. This is the plan. And we had enough people go, yeah, yeah, okay, I'll try that. I want to try it with you guys. So we've raised, I think, $33 million right now for all these operators. Um, successfully uh, uh, purchased about $22 million. We have some other um, portfolios that are in process of purchasing, about $22 million worth of businesses um, and have like 40 acquisitions under the operators. So, yeah, that's been that, – that – I think is super scalable because it doesn't it's passive investors with a small network of people that we already know had success. And so it's much more scalable, Mm -hmm. I think. 
Uh, I love that. I'm looking at the Web Street website right now, and uh, very exciting, very cool. Uh, you also made a, a heck of a transition, which was beautiful, from uh, you know Empire Flippers to Web Street, and just that story is is killer, right? And spotting that problem. I was so curious. I was about to ask, like, hey, what are the skills needed? But now I'm like, oh man, we're talking about Web Street. You don't need the skills. Just go invest. They created a, you know, we created an app for that. <laughs> Well, that's interesting. I mean, you still, now you yeah. have investing skills, right? And so now you need to be able to like vet deals and like compare one to another. So it's a different type of skill set than like mm -hmm. due diligence on a purchase, right? Um, but, but, you know, for Webster, we only take accredited investors. Like we're not taking Tim's mm -hmm. college fund or anything like that. It's only accredited investors. Um, you know, they can put in, I think it's 60,000 minimum per deal. And we have many, maybe half are repeat investors. So we get people that, that invest pretty regularly, either two to four times a year. We do it like every quarter. Uh, we raise a new round. Um, so yeah, we're, we, we've got different, you know, FBA, we've got SaaS businesses in there. We've got like a nice mix of different businesses and different operators. That speaks to the quality of, of the investments. If you're getting there that many repeat investors, right? Yeah. Well this, it, you know, this is a real estate model too, right? So they do this in real estate model with a uh, uh, real estate investment trusts and with like larger portfolios. Um, there's a bunch of businesses out there that, that uh, do this kind of thing in, you know, masterworks is a good example. They do that with art, right? They do it with art and they bank on appreciation of art where they have like small, you can put $20,000 on a Picasso, for example. Our, our, our thesis though, is that what's different about this is these are like passive cash flowing investments. So we're not, uh, solely relying on appreciation of the asset, this asset returns cash and dividends to investors every you know quarter. Now, what, what was different though? A lot of times, if you're whatever this can like tax things, but like if you're investing in a um, in something that um, you expect the money to like kind of roll in, there's a tax savings to you. Ours doesn't, so we deliver dividends or cash flow to investors every quarter. So if you're expecting it to kind of roll up in that single investment, this isn't for you. If you're looking for like a cash flow investment, this is a better option. One of the things that is like a uh, underlying thing that I really like about you and your story is the repetitive theme of I lost my self-preservation and my business grew. Right. And so there were a few times where, where that happened, where you made a self-preservation decision, which is like, hey, I, we want to sell our things. And you're like, wait a minute, we could actually share. Right. I want to choose sharing and my business business grew. And there were a few times where I just marked down that like, hey, as I kind of lowered my self-preservation, that actually gave me a lot of the things that probably I was hoping for in terms of my my you know bigger goals in life. And I think that's just a low key as just an individual, right? There's lots of strategy. There's lots of skills that you're going to need to be successful, but there's also going to need to be a state of mind and a story of like how you carry yourself. That's also going to help you be successful. And I think that's just a, a low key characteristic that actually is part of your story. That's really helpful. And, and I really appreciate seeing that. And it's been, been valuable to hear throughout your story. I think, I think we have a we have a tendency to like kind of like focus on it. what can we do, how can we make money, yeah. like, this business needs to work. Yeah, and every time we're doing that, it tends to uh, it tends to backfire. And we found we're we're much better when we're kind of like open about like trying to provide value to our audience, to our listeners. Well, yeah. I asked you before we got on, right? It wasn't a question of like, yeah. how can I sell my shit better? It was like, how can I better provide value to your audience? Tell me about your audience yep. and like who they are and like what I can speak to, right? Yeah. So I think that's going to be way more helpful. And you don't have to be. Um, like constantly selling yourself. Like if you're just trying to help other people, yeah. generally it comes back. I hate to be that, that guy, yeah. but like, it seems to be true. The more value you put out there. Oh, like that's the, the beauty. Yeah. It's not like a gospel or one of those, like, what are those like, uh, prosperity <laughs> yeah, yeah you guys like, can give the Joel Osteen, <laughs> right? I'll, we'll have a link for you. Uh, no, not to, but, but honestly the results, and that's why I was celebrating it is like, yeah, you just shared that that was a characteristic that you lived out in multiple places and we just heard about positive results that are happening, that have happened and are continuing to happen. So I think it's it's a fact, you know, it's it's fair. I love it. I want to end with just one question that's we can go anywhere with. So the idea or the question is, is there a habit you have professionally or personally that you think has an outsized return on your life? Yeah, I um I didn't follow this for a long time. I um I didn't focus on my health a ton when I was kind of like building the business uh, initially. I, I always passed on it. I said, look, you know, I'll worry about my health when I'm rich, right? Like, I'll, I'll just be, <laughs> let me just make some money first. Let me be successful first, and I'll worry about that later. 
And that was a really big mistake. I spent a good portion of my 30s being overweight, unhealthy, because I was so deeply focused on the business. And what I didn't realize at the time, I knew intellectually, but I didn't actually physically represent, was that there is a balance between kind of like health and wealth. And like, there is a, um, you know, you can't be as successful as you want to be in business if you're unhealthy and not doing well physically. Mm. Right. And so really kind of backing down over the last couple of years and focusing on my health has been super helpful. I didn't know how bad I was until I started to get much healthier and feel so much better. And it just makes me that much more effective, I think in business, honestly. So what were the, what were the specific biggest benefits? Was it confidence? Was it energy levels, stress management, all of it? Energy levels and stress management. I'd say I had a a bit of a health scare. This is maybe four or five years ago where I had like, had like a heart, not a murmur, but like some heart thing when I went to a physical and um, that that significantly cut down on my confidence level. Like up until then, not that I was invincible, but I just felt, you know, I was overweight, whatever, little, uh, um, you know, definitely out of shape, whatever, but just like, whatever. I was happy-go-lucky, right? But that health scare really kind of set me back and hurt my confidence. Um, I think created some anxiety in my life and made me just way less sure and uh, quite a bit more uncomfortable. And so um, that was tough because I'd never dealt with that before. I'd never, I'd always been pretty confident and, you know, um, somewhat successful in business and doing well. And just, and then I had this thing where I was like, I have a real health scare. What if, and it wasn't, ultimately it was fine, but it scared me enough to where I was like, oh shit, you know, like that's really important. Who cares about your successful business if you're dead, right? Right. So, um, <laughs> Richest so man yeah, in the focusing graveyard. on that is... Yeah, I just think that, like, if I could go back, you know, like, hey, spend some time, not all your time, but some time on nutrition, on uh, working out, on being physically active. Don't let it slip over year after year. It's a little it's a little decrease, right? You gain a little bit of weight, you become a little less active. You gain a little bit of weight, you're like, oh, you know what? I don't want to go do that um, hiking trip. You know what? I think I'll play video games instead or something. You know what I mean? And you're yeah. just like over time, over decades, that's really bad for you. Yeah. And it's almost like you forget what good felt like, you know? Yeah, and then you, true. you get back to, to somewhat eating good and, and moving and you're like, Oh, this is normal energy. So levels. much better. Yeah, this is so clear thinking, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it cuts down like the, the anxiety. It started to kick in the kind of a health scare or whatever that I had. The, the health scare went away, but the anxiety stayed. And I was like, oh my God, this sucks. And so that's decreased significantly. I just, I feel so much better. And I, I feel in a much better position to be helpful and useful to our audience, um, to our team, um, and to our partners that we work with. That's awesome, man. Well, Justin, thank you so much for, for making time, coming on here, sharing your success, your insights, your stories. Man, this has been a really fascinating conversation, and I'm happy that you were here. Thanks, Justin. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.